Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Today on the show, I have Rachel and Molly. Rachel and Molly are the hosts of the podcast, Cheers to Leaving, where they share their journey of deconstruction from evangelical Christianity. The podcast has been a platform for Rachel and Molly to explore their thoughts and feelings about religion and spirituality, as well as being able to connect with others who are going through similar experiences. Rachel is a deconstruction advocate from Kansas City, Missouri, who was raised in a house church where she was surrounded by religious teachings her entire life. And it wasn't until her 20s, while taking college classes, that she started questioning her faith and God and the afterlife. Molly is a trauma-informed, licensed massage therapist who was raised Southern Baptist on the mission field in Mexico City, Mexico. After returning to the United States, Molly stopped attending church and found herself slowly deconstructing. Even though she no longer identifies as a Christian or a religious person, Molly holds a profound respect for the sacred and religious. Co-hosting Cheers to Leaving has been pivotal in her healing process, and she hopes her listeners are able to find community and healing through the podcast and the community it offers. You can listen to Cheers to Leaving, including their upcoming episode with me, which airs tomorrow, April 20th, on all podcast platforms. You can also connect with Rachel and Molly on Instagram by following at Cheers to Leaving. Here are Rachel and Molly now. It is delightful to have Molly and Rachel from Cheers to Leaving podcast on this show. Welcome, welcome. I'm so happy to have you on. I know that we're doing crossover episodes so that I'm on your show and you're on this show. And I love being able to do that and sharing our joint concern about this issue and our enthusiasm for educating the public about it. And so can you tell my listeners a little bit about yourselves and what brought you into doing this podcast? So uh, Rachel with an A, Do you want to um, talk a little bit about you? So I'm Rachel and I started this podcast, Cheers to Leaving, back in 2020, kind of after a very long, slow burn of deconstruction. Like I didn't even know it was happening until like the word deconstruction started floating around the internet and the word exvangelical. Um, And I was like, oh, that's what I'm doing. After I realized that and seeing communities talking about this and hearing podcasts, it kind of sent me in like a full throttle towards completely deconstructing uh, my religion. And I felt the need to talk about it. So I originally started this podcast with, I had a co-host at the time, her name was Christina, and she only stayed for about 10 episodes. And then I kind of ventured off on my own for a little bit and then brought Molly on, um, I think in 2021, right? It was like February of 2021. Molly is actually um, the cousin of my husband. So that is how we know each other. And here we are with, uh, what, 30 episodes under our belt together. And it's been a great collaboration Yeah. So I grew up in a house church um, in Olathe, Kansas, and it was pretty closed off to the outside world. We didn't have like a, you know, any board members or leaders or anything like that. But that was sort of my experience with evangelicalism. And I guess that's kind of what led me here today. Um, I started educating myself and um, deciding what I believed in. And I came to the conclusion that I didn't believe the fundamentalism of Christianity. And we talk about it on our podcast and we try to help others who are going through it as well as giving them resources. And um, we're just here to help and we're here to talk and we're here to deconstruct. Nice. All good things. All good things to do. And right. I think having the word to understand what it is that you were doing and the process that you were going through, it's so helpful to know there's a term for that because then you can kind of feel connected 
Like if there's a term for it, that means that you're not the only one who's been doing this. Right. And you don't feel like you're going crazy or something. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And you don't also know that something has been constructed. So you don't know that you can deconstruct it as part of your healing, but it is very important. So I'm sure it takes you down a lot of roads of things being revealed to you about what you went through and needing to recollect what you went through. Okay. All right. Well, I'm so glad. And thank you for the explanation. Yes. Sometimes things go through different iterations until they land where they are. And it's good to know that the two of you have found this partnership here and, and work so well together. And uh, that means that, you know, this is something that's going to keep going in this form or any other, but that you have this nice way of addressing the public um, with your own insights, your own history being same and different. So Molly, you want to say, Hey, and introduce yourself. Yeah. So I grew up a Southern Baptist missionary kid in Mexico, um, lived in Latin America for about 11 years of my life, I came back to the U.S. in 2013. About a year after coming back to the U.S., I left the church and started kind of my own very slow burn of deconstruction as well before there was even a word for it. Funny enough, I found a lot of freedom in exploring something that was so taboo in my upbringing, which was sexuality. And so I was kind of starting my own study of it and exploration of it. I had gone on and gotten like a pelvic floor therapy certification. I am a body worker. And so I was pursuing that, trying to understand my own anatomy and all of the things that were left out of sex education. And then me and my um, good friend actually started our own little podcast project. We only released about four episodes and this was in 2020 and 2021. It was funny because we had just finished recording an episode. And after we had finished recording that episode, I turned to my co-host and was like, my cousin's wife just started a podcast and she talks about purity culture. Do you want to listen to it with me? And she was like, yeah, I'd be interested. So we put on Rachel's first episode of Cheers to Leaving and listen to it together. And I was like, oh my God, she's so brave. I can't believe she's talking about this stuff. Like I haven't even delved into sharing my story about what I went through growing up. So I remember reaching out to her and just being like, I am a super fan of the show. I'm so happy you're doing this. Like, good job, keep it going. And then it was about... Um, it was only a couple of months later, she reached out to me to come on the episode and talk about the, all the things I had learned through, through my own exploration around um, healthy sexuality. And we just discussed purity culture. And what I didn't realize was Rachel and I grew up very similarly. I, I had no idea when she came into my family, I had no idea that we were both house church kids. We were both homeschooled. We were both raised in Christian fundamentalism, even though I was in Mexico and she was in Olathe, Kansas, and she married my cousin. And um, that side of my family is still pretty Christian. And so kind of like coming together as like the two little black sheep of my family. <laughs> and, uh, so then um, when she asked me to be on the podcast and actually start talking about my story, uh, I was a little intimidated and very scared. There was lots of episodes where I would text her late at night and be like, can we delete like all of what I said? <laughs> I don't want this to get out. I don't want the wrong person to hear it. I had so much anxiety around sharing my story. It was it was terrifying. But now we're a year in and it feels natural and it feels safe. And the community we've built has been so impactful. We just have this really active Facebook group and all of the cool podcasters we've met in the deconstruction community and all the people we've been able to connect with over this. And the more we do it, the more we realize there are so many people like us who are desperate to hear other people's stories and to also share their own and to get resources. So we're really passionate about that on Cheers to Leaving is creating community for people and giving them really high quality resources. So a lot of deconstruction podcasts just focus on the stories, which is important. But what we try to do, especially in the last season and in this season, is bring on experts um, so that folks can learn how they can heal themselves and, and how to find community. Sometimes only talking about the story can be with, with no resolve can feel very triggering and re-traumatizing. And so we've been moving away from that as I now have dropped into the study of trauma and trauma healing and the nervous system within my professional life. It's kind of started to seep into the podcast and we've been really conscientious about creating safety for our listeners and for our guests. It's really wonderful. And I think to, to have it be in this really lovely way that it is about the mind and it's about the body. And also it's about getting to know yourself and also yourself sexually. 
There are a number of people who have said to me that they have left different, very restrictive environments and have needed to explore their own bodies. They've needed to understand sexuality. They've gotten involved in a lot of different things or in kink culture and whatever helps them feel free and explore in, in, in environments where they can not have to worry about any kind of judgment and really get to know themselves. And also within certain environments where you get to have a say over what happens and when it starts and when it ends and just all of that, just having the power to control what happens to your body and and having that the boundary that you can access and that other people need to follow. It can feel very, very healing. So I'm I'm so happy that you have been able to explore that, that you have the freedom to do that. I know I talked to someone who was raised in an environment where they were never able to see anyone naked. They couldn't look at themselves naked. They couldn't see anyone. They This happened to be someone who was born male. And when it was time for him to get married, he didn't know that people who presented as female had different parts than he did. He had no idea. And so here he was supposed to have a baby. And it's like, I don't don't know how one does, right? I mean, talk about really being behind. It's very kind of spring awakening-y, you know, when you think about then getting punished, um, but just because you weren't informed and you don't know what's happening and you don't know what you're supposed to be doing with the parts that you have. So I love though that it all kind of had this kismet thing about it where it came together and you're in the same family and you know, it all worked, worked out. So tell us a little bit about the podcast and some of the feedback you've gotten. And I know that, you know, you ask people to send in questions, which is really lovely thing in that they get a very personalized touch where they can have their questions answered. So if there's, you know, that I want to make myself available to that too, to answer some of your listener questions. Yeah. So we actually, so because this is a crossover episode, we just finished recording on our side for cheers to leaving with you, Rachel. And um, we did get some listener questions in. So these are uh, cheers to leaving questions that we asked in our Facebook group. We just have two that we wanted to ask you that did not get asked on our episode. So one is from Danelle. And this is the question. How do you support someone who is involved slash getting involved in a cult without losing yourself or compromising your beliefs? I'm trying to think of what would have prevented me from getting sucked into the evangelical cult when I was 18 and I keep coming up blank. When your brain got some of those, this is all real chemicals, you feel like nothing on earth can stop you and anyone who tries is persecution from the devil. I really want to know how to interrupt that cycle for my past self and for any future past me's I encounter. Okay. So that's a very powerful question. And I think it's very revealing about, you know, what you're up against when you're trying to intervene because you are up against, yeah, release of ton of endorphins and the sense that this is the way and the only way, and you don't want anything to pull you away from it. It's like getting involved. It's like falling in love and, you know, you're kind of awash with chemicals. I hate to deconstruct love in that way, but um, sort of. But you're not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But right, the honeymoon, the honeymoon period is very hard. Like if you see that someone is dating someone, you're like, oh, I'm not thinking this is going to be a good thing. You know, sometimes you have to wait until the, the chemicals wear off a little bit until they'll even hear you. Absolutely. Or until the shoe drops and they're like, hey, look at this trauma that you're experiencing. Don't you think that's a bad thing? Right. Yeah. That you can kind of use their experience as a way to highlight, not just that you're coming from the outside, trying to be a naysayer, but you're like, here, this is what I see is actually happening to you. It is hard to wait until that happens because you want to rescue someone sooner than that. But that sometimes is the turning point for them. When you are concerned about someone and you just see them getting really deeply involved in something and you feel I mean, it doesn't have to be that you've had the same experience, but if you have, then I think you can say something like, and this is sort of narrating the scene, which I think is sometimes a really helpful way of explaining things so that it's not like you're more right about something than they are, but you're sort of mm, highlighting what you're noticing and what, what you're up against in this situation. I'll tell you what I mean. So if this person were to say to a friend, I have a lot of thoughts 
And it doesn't have to be, I have a lot of concerns because sometimes, you know, right away, someone's going to dig into how they were prepped for people posing their concerns and questions. And so they just go into the script that they've been given to handle people. So I think to use a different language than people have been trained to respond to and just say, I have some thoughts about your involvement in such and such group. It's really reminding me of when I was involved in something. And I also know that at the time that I first got involved, there was no one who could have talked me out of it. There was no one who could have shown me what I was going to be experiencing. I wouldn't have believed them because I would have been too afraid that they were taking this one chance at having something, relationship with God or something, safety away from me. And so I would have just pushed them away. But what I wish I could have known was, and then you just sort of highlight what happened to you, what you didn't see at the beginning, but you started to see later. And to say, and I hope that this isn't going to be your experience, but if the following things, it's like doing cult education. If the following things end up happening to you, where you're needing to cut off from friends and family, if you're needing to think of yourself as a sinner or that you can't trust yourself and you have to give over decision-making power or, you know, you can't make a decision without asking someone in this group first, just highlighting, um, again, what makes something a cult. If those things start to happen to you, just know that I'm here and hold on to my number and hold on to my whatever it is, email address, whatever you want to use. And I will never say, I told you so. I will be right there with you, with you feeling overwhelmed by it and confused by it. But I will absolutely support you in looking at it really in a clear way. Again, I hope it doesn't turn out that way. But if it does, call me. So you are keeping this sort of, this line open to someone outside. And that you'll never say, I told you, um, and you let them know that you won't. And you also let them know that you know they're probably not believing what you're saying and they're not wanting to take it in. Again, you'll understand that because you were there once as well. If you haven't come from the experience of having had that as your own experience, you don't have to say I was there, but you can say from what I know, from what I've learned from people first getting involved in things, they really don't want to hear what you have to say. And they've probably also been taught how to respond emotionally, verbally. But I'm here if you start to notice the following things and then do your little cult education piece. And so that they don't get defensive about their group, say that might not happen in your group. I could be completely wrong here. But just in case, these are the things to watch out for to keep yourself safe. And if it happens, feel free to reach out to me. I'm here. I like how you said um, keeping that line of communication open because that also addresses the first part of the question, which is how do you support someone without losing yourself or compromising your own beliefs? I think a lot of people, especially people who were raised in very cultish <laughs> um, systems, they feel like they have to go out and save people. And I feel like that's still in us. Um, Rachel and I have talked about this on our show a lot. Is this like urge to go rescue people who are dropping into these kinds of groups. And we feel like we have to argue with people and we feel like we have to educate them when they don't necessarily want to hear it. And so we don't have to go be missionaries anymore. Okay. We stopped. We left that life. We're not we're not evangelists anymore for the other side. Also, it's exhausting. It is exhausting. And you like sacrifice so much of yourself when you open those channels up. It's almost like you're not saying, hey, I'll hold space for you if you find that these things are happening. It's I'll hold space for you whenever. And that's when you will be compromising parts of yourself. So I like that, that it's like, hey, this line is open if you need it. But I am not going to try to convince you that what you're doing is wrong. I've I've shared with you what I know. And now I'm going to step away and let you have your thing. And if you need me, I'm here. Yeah, it's almost like like in an abusive situation or something. You're not going to try to tell them to leave or whatever, but you're going to say, hey, if you feel the urge to leave, you can come to me or you can stay with me or here's my support or whatever. 
you compromise yourself when you see your friend, if we're going to use this example, you see your friend in an abusive situation, right? And you show up at their house and you're like, come on, we're going to pack up right now. And they're like, no, I don't want to. And then you start throwing all of their stuff in the bag. You're like, come on, we got to go. No, I don't want to. I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. I'm not going to leave. And then they're like, fine, I'll go with you. And then they go with you. And then they're staying with you and they're living with you rent-free. And then they go back to their abusive boyfriend. And then they are calling you, come pick me up again. Come pick me up again. (laughs) He hit me. Well, I like I saved you from that. Okay, I'm going to come get you. And then you end up in that cycle with them. And that is so bad for you. (laughs) So it's like being able to just not, like you can't, you have to have boundaries as the person on the outside. Right. So it's hard. It's hard when you see something in front of you or when you can foresee where something's going to be going. And you're trying to save someone from themselves and from that group. Know that if you help to rescue someone from a situation, the chance of them going back a few times actually is very high. And so you want to be on that road with them if you choose. It's almost like they have to keep seeing it for themselves and experiencing it for themselves to get the message really deeply embedded. And if you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to try to rescue someone if that's what you want to do, but by the morning they might be gone and then they'll need help again. And then by the next morning, they might be gone. And just to know that that's going to be happening until they finally say, okay, I'm done. It's good to just predict that so that you're not frustrated or you're not thinking you didn't do a good enough job uh, at rescuing. Because sometimes helping people see things for themselves or giving them a chance to just see that over and over again is the thing that really is the clincher for them. What's also true, and this is something that I know when we talked on your show about sort of the definition of a cult, one of the things that I left out that I realized comes in handy here is that you're often told not to look up anything about the cult, like not to find out any information about it online, not to talk to people who have left, not to get information about lawsuits, about complaints, not to talk to people who have left I think it's in part that you're supposed to be shunning them and that's to encourage them to come back. But often the leader knows that if you talk to someone who's left, they might be going through a hard time or they might be so happy and finally successful in their lives and finally feeling good. And the leader doesn't want you to see that. If you are to say to someone, listen, I, you know, you don't have to believe me about this group. There's enough information out there. And if the group doesn't want you to access it, I want you to think about why that is. Because you have the right to have access to information. It's a constitutional right. No one has the right to take away. So if someone says, don't talk to people who have left, don't do research online, that's when you talk to people who have left. And that's when you do research online because there's a reason they're telling you not to. I see these kinds of interventions as a dance. Uh, like a slow dance. If you're slow dancing, if someone takes a step forward, like into your face, you need to step back. And so if you're in someone's face, this is a bad group, this is blah, 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 they're probably going to take a step back and just go into their scripted responses. They're like, what's my line here? Oh, right. I don't even have to be invested emotionally in this conversation because I've already been trained to deal with hostile you know, people. Instead, you want to kind of take a step back and say like, I'm here. This is what I want you to look for. See it with your own eyes or don't, but I'm here if you need me. And if you don't want to contact me, then, and that's sort of to invite someone to come forward because you're giving them that space to come forward, then call the the following organizations, find, let them know what the resources are or listen to the following podcasts and get the information yourself. It's not about me being right here. It's about you gaining access to all the information that is being kept from you. I do find most people though, deep into cults do not want to research or find information. I've definitely come in contact with people like that when we do have differing opinions and I've done the research to hear both sides and they do not want to hear both sides because that would just confirm what they've believed for so long is a lie. So I like that you're saying to research, but I also wonder what you do when someone refuses to learn or research. Right. So that goes back to the narrating thing. Like just say out loud, I have a feeling that as I'm telling you this to do research, that you're not going to want to do it. And I understand because that might mean that you need to gain access to information that you don't want to know, that you don't want to know is true. Or that might mean that you might feel like you have to make a change and you're too afraid to now because you were told that if you leave, 
you're leaving God or you're leaving salvation or you're leaving your family. And so I know that as I'm suggesting that you do this, you're probably thinking there's no way. And I would understand your fear. Just know the information is there if and when you ever want to access it. And it also doesn't mean you have to make a change. You can still be in the group and still just be gaining information and it might guide you to leave or you might decide that you stay, but at least you're staying in a well-informed way. Like you know what the risks are about being involved. Thank you so much for that thorough answer. And hopefully that answers our listeners' question. So our other question is, and this is the second part, same person. I would also be interested to hear her perspective as a therapist regarding people on the spectrum, specifically autism, because I honestly think we are more susceptible to this kind of brainwashing due to how we struggle with I struggle to detect ill intentions in people and are always told from a young age that we are exaggerating slash melodramatic and not to trust our own instincts and bodies. And this is something I relate to a lot because I am on the spectrum. I have ADHD. And that is also something that is shut down in Christianity is trusting your own intuition, trusting your body. We're taught to fear that. Lean not on your own understanding is something we're told often, especially as women and young children. So we could get your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I I know that I dealt a lot with trying to help families who would come to me and say, I have a, a son or a daughter who's in a relationship with someone who, who has completely taken over their lives. They dictate how often we get to talk to them. They dictate who is allowed to be in their life, what friends they can see. They have to ask permission before they can do anything now, or they need to give over everything they have or all their resources or all their money to this other person. And they're willingly doing it because they think that this is what they're supposed to do. And so how can we help them? And so it sort of took me down this path of trying to explore what it means to be on the spectrum and what might make you vulnerable to certain means of control. Now, there are some people who are on the spectrum, or actually a lot of people who are on the spectrum, who have talents that are beyond what, you know, mere mortals have. So there are some definite strengths and some wonderful things at times about being on the spectrum. But one of the things that can happen though, is that you're not necessarily picking up on social cues in the same way. If you're not doing as much eye contact, you're not necessarily picking up on micro signals of control and manipulation. There are also people who deal with feeling isolated in through a lot of their lives. And they're very happy that someone's paying attention to them in this way. Sometimes their first romantic relationship is with someone who is very controlling and they don't really necessarily know because they don't have a frame of reference that they shouldn't be treated this way. And sometimes it pierces the isolation, the social isolation. So they're willing to kind of go along with being mistreated at times, unfortunately. But what's also true is that if you are geared towards being like an honest engine and you say it as it is, you're going to assume that what's true for you is true for other people and that you're going to assume that other people are telling you the truth also. And it's devastating to find out that that's not the case in these situations, that someone is actually lying and knowingly lying and manipulating you and manipulating the trusting nature in you. Because again, you're trustworthy to a certain degree and sometimes to a degree where it makes you have a hard time socially because you're saying it as it is. But then you're again, you're going to assume that's how people are talking to you. So there are also times that people who are on the spectrum want to be able to get help with modulating their emotions and getting help with their emotions. And having a, a belief system can sometimes quiet the nerves. And so you can be so happy to be on what feels like an even keel, uh, not knowing that it really is sort of encroaching, like the walls are kind of coming in on you and you're getting more and more under their spell, under their control, just because it feels good to have that, mm, that feeling of um, a structure around you, like a formula to follow that makes sense and that calms you. So I think all of these things lend themselves to having people on the spectrum be more open to, unfortunately, to the manipulations and also the very strict structure around you that you might not fight against it because it feels good and containing. 
Thank you so much. That was very eye-opening. Um, and it was, I mean, I kind of expected that kind of answer, just given my own experience with um, with ADHD and with a lot of the folks I've encountered in the deconstruction space who also have autism or on the spectrum as well, finding it really difficult to trust themselves and their own instincts. Rebuilding that trust with themselves is really big. Yeah. My niece is uh, autistic and she's only, she's going to be 11 and she already struggles with a lot of the things that you just mentioned. And my sister's very worried about her just being out in the world, you know, cause it, it'll be something simple. Like some kid is like at school and convinced her to just give her $20. And my sister was like, no, like, like, but that, that was just like an honest thing that happens. You know, she, she thought this person was being genuine. She thought they needed it, you know? So it's just, it's small things like that to where you have to have someone watching over you essentially, because you can't depend on the kindness of strangers, I guess, because that's your weakness. Right. And cults will see that. Oh yeah. And, and I think cult leaders and controllers test you. They want to see if you're willing to do something and then they'll see if you're willing to do something else like this person who said oh give me twenty dollars what can they get out of her the next day you know and kids are manipulative they 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 find your manipulative like spots and they just like go for it they're kind of like masterminds it's crazy <laughs> For me, it was, I know I mentioned this in our podcast that we did together earlier was the MLMs, multi-level marketing companies. I was so susceptible to this um, when I first came out of the church and was like moving in the adult world by myself and having ADHD. I have impulse control issues, especially when it comes to things that I need like money. And so people, I would get just like coerced into these really shysty programs and give all my money away. And I'd make really impulsive decisions on this promise of a better life. And, um, you know, I'd get all these dopamine hits when I would do it. And then the dopamine hangover would hit you know, because it doesn't last very long and you're left with like, oh my God, what did I just do? And, you know, so many people with ADHD struggle with this um, just in a regular day-to-day basis with like spending problems and not thinking through decisions that they're making. And so things like pyramid schemes and MLMs and cult groups are really enticing to us. <laughs> We're just like, ooh, that looks like, you know, that, that that's going to save me. That's going to give me the dopamine I need. That's going to give me the safety and security and certainty that I'm looking for in life because life is so chaotic and I need that routine and structure. And so I'm drawn toward that, you know, I'm drawn to that shiny thing that, you know, that has all the answers. So for me, it was, I started running by, I I did this with my partner whenever I would get like enticed with a business idea or whatever from an MLM person, I would go to my partner and I'd be like, do you think that this is a pyramid scheme? And he would look at it and he'd be like, yeah, yeah, that is that that's a pyramid scheme. Like, let's really look at the numbers here and like, look at the like possibility of you really getting rich off of this. And over time, I built the internal guidance in myself to start to notice those things and like figure it out for myself. So now it's really hard to scam me. It's a lot harder, but it it took several years of making some pretty big financial mistakes. Um, just because I was chasing that like shiny thing that screamed security and certainty. Right. You know, there, there is something about waiting, like having the carrot dangled in front of you and the waiting for you to get what you were promised. That is so integral to this, that people spend a lot of time waiting and waiting and waiting and working, working, working and waiting and waiting and waiting. And I want whatever the shiny thing is that they've been promised to come true a lot sooner. And to, for you to have the expectation of that and not just be told to put more into it so you can get more out of it or in the hope that you can get more out of it. Same thing with a relationship, same thing with a controlling partner. You don't have to keep proving yourself in order to be treated well. You need to be treated well from the beginning. And so it's not that you need to show your devotion or do whatever you said you were going to do or give the money like they had asked for whatever else uh, or make dinner on time or whatever the structure of the relationship is in order to be treated well. That's that's a given and that needs to happen from day one. But a lot of people wait and they hold on to the promise and the waiting. And I, I guess what I want people to do is after the first day of something, after the first week, let's say, to think, what have I received? Not how much more do I need to give in order in the hope 
hope of receiving? What have I actually gotten in a real way to show that this is worth it? I think she just blew up the whole concept of like church. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Church, you give and give and give. And I mean, not all churches, but a lot of the time they ask for your time and your money and your energy with very little reward. Right. Or the reward is in the afterlife. Right. Exactly. Saving up treasures, you know, you know, in heaven and all of that. That was always something I struggled with too. It didn't make a lot of sense. I I think the thing with at least Christianity and the cultiness of it is that you're always looking towards the next life and you're never living in the present moment. And that I think is one of the things that kind of kills you when you leave is that, you know, you kind of wasted all this time and didn't really enjoy your life or you were so, you missed your whole childhood or your adolescence because you were so fixated on this next life that you're missing out on this one. And I think that's a huge warning sign if people are telling you, oh, you don't need to go to college. You need to, you know, share the love of Jesus with people and you don't need to, you know, play with friends. You need to convert them. You know, <laughs> So, or you need to get married and start having babies and start indoctrinating them. That was the message I received very, like my parents were always like, you need to go to college. Like it wasn't from them that I received this message. It was the leaders that they put us around the other adults who were giving us this narrative of you're going to go to college. You're going to meet a nice man. You're going to get married. You're going to start having babies. And I watched every single one of the girls I grew up with do this. I was the only one not to do this. I came out as queer. (laughs) I am unmarried. I am, you know, I went on to get a technical degree and uh, pursue a completely different life. And I'm, I'm very grateful that I went the route I did. And, you know, I hope that they're happy in, in their lives. But I think about like, what if I had gone and done those things? Would I be happy now? Because I wouldn't have been living life for me if I had done that. I would have been living life according to a structure that I was told is the way for me to do as a good Christian woman. Uh-huh. Wow. So I'm curious about that for both of you. What because this is something that the listeners of the podcast, you know, are very focused in on, especially people who are listening, who are in situations or who have loved ones in situations that they're trying to help them see might not be useful for them in their lives and might actually be destructive. What led both of you to leave the, the organizations that you were in and what it was like at first when you got out and what helped you with your healing. So I think Molly, you were just talking about sort of following a different path in the group and not doing what all your peers were doing. And that takes a lot of strength, perseverance, tenacity, a lot of things, bravery to do. What was the turning point for you to leave? I was always kind of a little bit of a rebel. I never really fully wanted to conform to my parents' faith or the rules and guidelines, I always found problems and loopholes and plot holes (laughs) in the theology. I was always pointing my finger at those things and just very hyper-focused on the hypocrisy that I was seeing. And so around the age of 16, I remember sitting in house church and listening to my dad do a teaching. I don't even remember what it was about, but I remember writing in my journal because my dad and I had a very tumultuous relationship my whole life up until like probably my mid twenties. And he was like a big disciplinarian and ran a very tight ship. And so I was like listening to him teach about compassion and kindness and forgiveness and letting people, you know, how important it is to allow people to question things. And I'm like, dude, you don't even let me do this in our own household. Like what the hell? (laughs) And I was so angry and I, I was just writing in my journal. I'm like, I don't even believe half of the stuff that he teaches us, but I do try to follow the rules and I can't be good enough. And now I'm listening to him talk about all of these things and all these people are listening to him and following him, yet he can't even follow through with the things he's teaching. And that for me was like that moment where I was like, oh, once I'm out of this house, I'm out of this religion. Like I am walking away and I'm going to pave my own way. This was also the year where I started to develop a very strong awareness um, toward my sexuality and that I was a little bit more open-minded than the rest of the people I was around and I was attracted to women. And so it, it was it was a slow burn. It took lots of time. I ended up dating someone in high school and we continued to date through college 
And he was also raised in the church, but he started to walk away um, halfway through his college degree. And and that really bothered me. I was very triggered by it. I was like, who do you think you are that you can just walk away from the way we've been raised? And he'd be like, but Molly, you've also walked away. Can you not see that you also have stepped away from it? I'm like, no, I haven't. I haven't really. And he was like, really? When's the last time you prayed? When's the last time you went to church? When's the last time you bought into the concept of heaven and hell? And I was like, oh my God you're right. Cue the identity crisis. He was also someone who pointed out my sexuality and was like, I don't think you're as straight as you think you are. Maybe you should think about that. Maybe you should explore that. Maybe that's something that you should be more open-minded toward. And I was like, oh my God, I've been gaslighting myself. So (laughs) I started down this road. We ended up breaking up around, I think it was like 22 or 23 when we broke up. And I quickly got into a relationship with a narcissist and he really isolated me from my family he wasn't like overtly abusive, just cheated a lot, a lot of infidelity and gaslighting. And I was seeing that pattern and seeing like, oh, a lot of the tactics you're using are the same tactics I saw in the church and the same tactics I saw with my relationship with my dad. This is all kind of coming full circle. And yeah, so I left that relationship. And then around that time, I started podcasting with Rachel and it was like, oh shit, like at this point I'm on the other side of it. And now we're learning how to cope and how to heal and how to deconstruct all of this stuff. I think it's interesting. And I know in the, in the crossover episode on your show, you mentioned a little bit about nightmares. So I'm wondering about that part for you. And if you feel comfortable to whatever degree sharing what they may have been about, but also what has helped with them, if anything. So I still struggle with night terrors. They come up for me quite often. Um, I found that they started getting less and less the more I spoke on what happened in my life, in my childhood. All of my dreams have to do with family dynamics and not feeling listened to, understood, or believed. Being accused of lying, being accused of creating something for the sake of drama, being gaslit, essentially. And my nightmares all have to do around being gaslit and being controlled. And the people who I want to be closest to not believing me. I wake up in like full body sweats For a long time, I decided I was not going to dream. And so I smoked a lot of weed, which keeps you from dreaming, but it also prevents you from entering true REM state. So, you know, I would sleep through the night, but I wouldn't get like the full rest and recovery that my brain needed. And so a lot of the trauma processing was put on hold. All of that emotional work was put on hold because I was just quite disassociated due to weed. And weed can be really, really healing for some folks. I was using it quite as a crutch. And it wasn't until last month I decided to start really cutting back and working through this shit in a more awake way. (laughs) And um, now I take a little bit of melatonin and CBD gummies to help me sleep. My dreams are weird. They are not horrific. They are weird though. And I haven't had a night terror since I started cutting back on that, but I also have been in the last year working with my trauma in a much more open-minded way. Okay. So thank you for that. And for you, Rachel, what was the kind of the shift for you when you decided to leave and what was the journey like for you when you first got out? Okay. I feel like this probably started back around the time I was 20, 21. I got pregnant at 19 because no sex ed and um, brainwashing. Uh, I was in a really, um, that was my narcissistic relationship. He was abusive emotionally, mentally. That's a lot, a lot of gaslighting. And my mom also has narcissistic tendencies. So I grew up with also a lot of gaslighting, huge people pleaser, toxic empathy, all of that. And so after I had had my daughter, you know, kind of everything kind of fell apart, you know, and I was at my parents' house and, um, you know, they were kind of trying to indoctrinate my daughter a little bit. And I was very much in this way of like, oh yeah, I should just follow along with what they're saying. And this is what I should do. As time went on, I started just rebelling a little bit against these beliefs. Like I would question them on their, you know, the things they say about the Bible, you know, like, oh, you know, no, not sex before marriage, you know, things like that. Well, where in the freaking Bible does it say that, you know, all this stuff about marriage and all this stuff. And they didn't really have answers for me. I mean, there's always the, there's always the cop out of, well, you know, we can't understand everything God does or, you know, the the cop out of just sort of like, 
you're an idiot, but God's not. So just trust and believe in him and all that stuff. So I finally moved out uh, probably when my daughter was like two or three. I still considered myself a believer in God, but I kind of was about that whole like, that's a relationship, not a religion, you know, that whole rhetoric and kind of, I guess, more of the progressive type vibe. But I definitely started easing up on the parameters of that. Like I I noticed a lot of hypocrisy with like my ex, obviously, who is a proclaimed Christian worship leader, you know, things like that. And I was like, okay, but you treat me like absolute garbage, you know, and you tell me I'm crazy. You're taking me to court constantly. You you know, you're not acting quote Christ-like. And so I was questioning that. I started exploring uh, more like like, you know, as indoctrinated in purity culture, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, sleep around a little bit. And I did, you know, and that was kind of like enlightening, I guess, you know, I didn't die because (laughs) I slept with a few guys, you know? And, um, so it continued, I guess, to snowball, but I, I still refused to be like, I'm not a Christian. You know, I, I didn't, I wouldn't say that. And so I would say probably around 26 or 27, I was living with Molly's cousin, who's now my husband at the time. And there was just like a lot of room to question stuff. And I started taking some college classes and um, really just, I started getting angry for the lack of knowledge that I, you know, didn't know because I was homeschooled. So everything was very, you know, Christ-centered, you know, didn't believe in evolution. I didn't even know what evolution was at 26 or 27. Like I knew what it was, but it was bad. And it wasn't true. And so I'm discovering this. I'm learning about art history. I'm learning about like, all of these things. And so I get really, really curious and I start listening to podcasts. I start learning about like actual education. And then I start questioning, well, all of this makes sense. Where does God fit into it? And eventually I came to the conclusion that God didn't fit into it, not for me. And it was scary because then I went into about six or seven months of pure panic of death, the afterlife. You know, when you're taught about where you're going to go when you die when you die and then all of a sudden it's gone and you're like, am I okay? Like, am I going to be okay? And I remember I went through like a six or seven solid months of constantly thinking about this. Like I was freaked out and, um, that eventually went away because I was convinced I was going to go to hell. (laughs) My fear of death went away, I guess, to the extent that I was obsessing over it. But yes, hell was still very real for me last year because there's always that what if in your brain, you know, when you've just been indoctrinated since very young. So anyway, I started listening to evangelical podcasts and hearing other people that were doing that journey, you know, and then I learned the word deconstruction and evangelical. And so through that journey, I think I was already to the point where I was like, yeah, I'm done with this. But, you know, I, I definitely went to church with my in-laws a few times, my mom and, you know, was still in that community, but I was like not telling anyone. And I guess I still haven't formally announced it, but I don't need to. And, um, life after it is still complicated. I'm still struggling because as the things of indoctrination or religion fall away from you, you feel like you're almost left with nothing. And that can be a good thing, but it's so frightening and it's so scary and it's so overwhelming. And you feel robbed, you know, from your childhood, you feel robbed from your life. And so I would say life afterwards was kind of rough. And I did go back to that thinking of like, is this because I left? Is this because you know, I don't believe in God anymore. You know, oh, everyone was right. My life is worse now, all that stuff. But it's not worse because I'm I'm free to ask questions. I'm free to explore. I'm free to recognize things. My critical thinking has gone up immensely, you know, and I'm free to educate myself. And it's not worse. It's just different. And it's just different because I haven't been doing this very long. So the podcast is really helping me process this in my journey with other beautiful people and experts and things like that to just kind of like be in solidarity with the fact that we're all kind of going through the same thing and it's hard, but like, it's worth it. Very nice. Very real. I mean, very real about the struggle and, and also just highlighting how recent some of these awarenesses are, how many years it takes. And that sometimes it comes uh, when you're not expecting it and it can come during a podcast episode and it can come when you're just having a thought. But I, I'm wondering just about not knowing. There's something about just being in this not knowingness that it raises a lot of anxiety for a lot of people. And one of the things that people have talked to me about is that coming to this place of not having the answer 
being more okay with that. Yes. Sitting with it. Right. Sitting in the unknown and being okay. Yeah. It's, it's gotten better. And I think it's cool to be curious because it just gives you so, so many options, right? There's not just an answer to everything. And as scary as that is, it's also really cool. Interesting. Right. Right. I mean, because there's this existential angst that comes up and these are really, these are the major issues, life or death. And so a lot of people don't really know how to talk about it or deal with it. And you don't have to have been in a religious environment to be having a hard time. society. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like the trend of like on TikTok and mostly on TikTok where you aren't allowed to talk about death, you have to say unalive. And I kind of hate that because all we're doing is getting further and further away from recognizing that death is very natural and normal. And we're like censoring the word death. And I think that's what contributes to the fact that we're all kind of terrified of it. You know, it's, it's not a societal norm and it's so weird. Like, why aren't we talking about it? Why can't we talk about it? Interesting. And then when you go by the term unalive, then are you giving the term death that much more power over you because it's this thing that you can't say and you can't really address. And that maybe the thing that would help you is some desensitization work, which means talking about it, dealing with it, saying it. We spoke with a death doula last season and she really helped us desensitize a lot of it. And when when it comes to talking about death just in general and feeling more comfortable with it and feeling more comfortable with uh, finding peace with what do you believe so that you can pass without fear. It's just fascinating work to desensitize around the concept of death because in Christianity, they really make it like this big hullabaloo of like, you're going to burn in hell for forever and eternity. And there's going to be- Or they'll just ignore it altogether and say, oh, you're not going to die. You're going to live on forever. Like, yeah, you're going to have eternal life. Like there is no death. You know, Jesus came to destroy death or whatever. And it's like, okay, we're just all in denial here (laughs) about the fact that we will die. It's almost like because death is such a taboo thing in our society too, we're not allowed to really have the time and space to grieve properly. So there's a, a lot of people um, I have a friend whose dad just passed recently and we were having a chat about it. And I was like, how are you doing? She goes, you know, I'm, I'm going to get through it. I'm going to be okay. You know, but there's a lot of things that I wish I had said to him. And I'm like, well, you can still say them to him, light a candle, have a moment, write it down, tell him all the things you need to say. And she looked at me like I was crazy. She goes, but he's passed on to the other side. He's in heaven. And I was like, Girl, if you don't get quiet with yourself, light a damn candle, sit with the energy that your father gave you and say the things, really let yourself grieve. Let yourself be with what has happened. Like you don't have to rush through this process. It's not healthy to rush through it. It's not healthy to say, I'm going to be okay. You can be not okay. Like you can grieve this stuff. Like I feel like leaving a cult is a death in a sense. Like it is a death of identity you need time and space to grieve and you need time and space to be angry and process through those stages of grief. And grief is like one of those things you can't really command it. It's going to do its own thing and it's going to move through you the way it needs to move through you. So if we're trying to suppress that, it's only going to make this healing process all the more painful and uncomfortable and prolonged. Right. It's interesting. I mean, I don't know what I believe about when people die, but what I do know, like when my dad passed away, when I was 22. I still don't. I mean, it was, he was young. I was young. I forget to visit him at the cemetery because I don't think of him as being there. He's so much integrated into my psyche, into the way I parent, into the things that matter to me, into, I don't know, my voice is similar to his where we just don't, we don't yell. Like we have this voice all the time. Um, And so people will often say, oh, you remind me of your dad. And so he's here in whatever way, but maybe just through DNA. But I remember someone saying to me after he died, you know, you can still talk to him, like hang out, talk to him, whatever. And she also gave me little pieces of 
rice paper, I think it was, that she writes notes on and then lights them on fire because they go like poof really, really quickly and then go up into smoke. And she said to send a message to wherever, to him wherever. And I thought, I don't know if this is going to work or not, but it's kind of a nice thing, you know, to just send a little message or throw it in the ocean if it's biodegradable. But I think that it is really nice to know that it can be individual and that no one gets to decide how you mourn and no one gets to decide what happens to you when you die. No one really knows, I think, even though they say they do. And so it's open for you to interpret it in a way that works for you, I think, that that means something to you. What's also true is I think a lot of people are left at coming out of these experiences, assuming the worst. Like, if we don't know the answer, that means something bad. Like, then something bad is going to happen or I'm not safe or something. Why is it automatically something bad? Um, it could just be that we don't know and that we'll remain not knowing and that no one knows. And that's okay. Doesn't mean you're not safe because you don't have the answer. But there is this sort of automatic equation of A plus B equals bad. Like if you don't, if there's some part of that equation that you that you're uh, opposed to or that you don't yet have the answer to, then you're unsafe. Why? Why? Okay. So just as we're we're finishing up. I know there's so much for you both to talk about, so many of your experiences. I'm wondering, just as you know, as you've been doing this podcast, have you noticed that there are certain messages, certain themes that keep coming up that people need, they need to be reassured of things, or they find a certain message very kind of relieving. And maybe just because you've been through it yourselves, that you are someone who's saying, you can get through this. And what are some of these messages that really help the listener feel, I think, hopeful, feel better as they're going through this journey? I think for our community in particular, what I've noticed is that there is so much healing and freedom in knowing that they're not alone. Hearing our stories, hearing the stories of the guests we've had on the show, even the experts who've come on and shared um, their professional opinions on what we've all gone through is so healing to them. And then having the space to also be able to share their stories and find camaraderie with others who've also gone through it. That is what I've noticed has been the most impactful in our community that we've built in particular is knowing that they're not alone and knowing that they're not crazy. What they went through was real and that the pain that they are experiencing in this healing process as they're going through the death and rebirth of identity from leaving these really cult-like systems, they're able to um, to find others who have also gone through it. I would agree with that. Validation goes a long way, especially because I feel like at least that's our angle, obviously, is evangelicalism, but other forms of religion is all about kind of invalidating you know, your feelings and focusing them on more on other things like it, it's you're not supposed to wallow i guess in how you feel or you know in the gaslighting and stuff so i feel like validation and community which is ultimately i feel like what we were all looking for when we left and so to have a safe place in a non cult like you know potential way i think is really healing for everyone i think it's what people seek out in general when they get involved in cults is a sense of community a sense of being in this togetherness, this experience together. And then it goes south very fast because, you know, of the narcissistic leaders or because of the super, super strict rules, um, the hypocritical ways of thinking and, and the fundamentalism that just seeps through all of it. The white Christian nationalism, <laughs> all the things that are part of this experience. So getting out of it and then being able to find like communities of safety that do provide that sense of like belonging and community without the negative aspects of it is so powerful. And it it's like when they say you get hurt in relationship, but you heal in relationship. So if you have trauma around relationship, you are only going to be able to fully heal that by being in relationship with someone in a healthy way, a different person, obviously, right? So I think that that is what is so powerful about the work we're doing with this podcast is seeing how people are able to actually find that community they were always seeking out in the first place. But this time it's to heal together and to work through some heavy shit together and not to control and manipulate and convert each other. Right. It's like you're not saying we know what's best for you and we know what you need to do. You're just sharing what helped you 
and giving other people a chance to share what helped them and to give people the opportunity to just sort of kind of pick and choose what they think might work and try it on for size and see, but that, you know, your days of listening to someone dictate how you should be doing things are are over and you're not going to be engaging in that either. I love that you're empowering people just to be educated about the choices before them, the choices for healing and belief, and that there are choices and that one isn't better or worse than another uh, or more dangerous or safe than another. It just is. But to regain your power, I think is a really important thing. And I think a real recurring message for both of you, like I get to decide things. I get to know things on my own terms and believe them because that's what works for me. And I don't have to feel so much fear about sort of believing it the wrong way. And so thank you. Thank you to both of you for sharing your stories, for giving a forum for people to learn, for people to talk And where can people find the podcast and anything else that you want them to be able to find? All our handles are at Cheers to Leaving. So it's really easy. We're on TikTok. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. And our Facebook group, we have linked um, in every single episode bio. So if you head over to our, you know, we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, pretty much anywhere you can listen to podcasts, we're on it. Um, So if you click that link, you can um, ask to join our group. You'll have to answer some questions. Otherwise, we won't let you in. Yeah, you can join our group and you can find us on every platform at Cheers to Leaving. People can also email us at leaving at gmail.com. And so if they have any stories they'd like to submit or they're just reaching out for some community or even if they want to come on the podcast. So we're always open to people pitching us to come on the show. So please do email us. Sounds great. It was a total pleasure. Thank you, Molly. Thank you, Rachel. And hope to talk to you again. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us. One more thing before you go. Something that we talked about that I just wanted to go over briefly a bit more now was something that, oh, I hear about so often that people will talk about all that they gave all that they did for the person who they were devoted to or the group they were devoted to, the person who they were dating, the group they were following. And very often on that list isn't what they received. And so often in these groups and in some of these relationships we talk about with controllers, You're not supposed to want to receive or need to receive anything. That's very often seen as selfish and needy and dependent and childlike and a lot of other things that you're told in an insulting way, like somehow they're diagnosing your need to be receiving as much or even a modicum of how much you are giving. The scales are always tipped to one side in these groups, in these kinds of relationships. You give and you give and you give, and there's no end to the amount of giving. And people give over all of their resources. They'll sign over property. They will give over all of their belongings. But more importantly, they'll give over their trust or their ability to trust themselves. They'll give over their critical thinking They'll give over basically their safety nets to keep themselves safe. And there is a lot that happens within these groups that makes people feel like if they haven't received what they were promised, it's because they haven't given enough. And if, for example, the person you're with hasn't started treating you well yet, it's because you're not doing things just as he or she wants. You're not trying hard enough yet. You're not pleasing them enough yet. You're not doing it perfectly yet. So often when I work with people, I have to help them see that if they want to receive something, even something small, they're not being needy and they're not being selfish. There always needs to be a circular nature to giving 
and to taking and receiving. Yes, you want to give with a full heart. You don't just want to give so that you'll receive, but you also don't want to devote yourself to a group or to a person who just keeps taking, who doesn't mind that you just keep giving and giving and giving and doesn't even think about giving back. I would not be able to live with myself if I knew that I accepted gifts from, let's say, a relative year after year after year, and I never gave anything back. There's something in the nature of the reciprocity that just feels right. And if you have a conscience, it just feels right to give back after you've received. What's really difficult, though, in a lot of these groups is that you're really made to feel that unless you're suffering through something, unless you've given over everything, then you're not going to receive the gifts. But it's also okay to step back and say, where are these gifts? Yeah, that's not exactly why I'm doing it and I'm trying not to seem needy. But is there anything that I'm getting? And if it is that it's this carrot that's being dangled in front of you, you will receive, but only if you prove yourself a little more, then no, that's never going to happen. And I hate to be so blunt about it because I know there's some people listening who are in these situations. But if you're almost there and you're always almost there and you're almost in a position to receive and you just have to give more and you just have to sacrifice more, then know that they're holding on to you and they're taking advantage of this hope that they've instilled in you, that there's going to be this light at the end of the tunnel. But what you want to know is that it should already be bothering them if they are good people that they haven't given back to you for all that you have given. So you want to see it as diagnostic about them, that they're willing to take and to push you to give and give and give without giving back, and they feel perfectly fine about it. They shouldn't, but they do. So at some point, it's important for you to look at yourself and to think, it's okay for me to want something for this time, for the devotion, for the service for the free labor. It's really okay. And I should be surrounding myself with people who want to give, just like I want to give. And if I'm not, then I am in a situation that is parasitic. I am the host to someone else who is draining me and feels no guilt about it. You deserve more. You deserve to receive as much as you give with a full heart. That's what people do for each other who are good people. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.